how do we learn how to hold your story and my story in, in a larger shared story? That doesn't mean that I have to disappear my story into your story or your story into mine, but we get a bigger story by actually putting our stories together. That's the cultural side. But then we need to do structural belonging, which is how do we also create systems and structures in policing, in education, in healthcare, in housing, in the way that the economy works, in the way in which we relate to the environment and the yeah. creation? How do, we, how do we create systems that also reflect belonging? It's one thing to say, we're in this together. It's another thing entirely to practice belonging and pay the kind of price required to actually broaden one's tent to include people who would just as soon exclude or eliminate you from the sociocultural mix altogether. For many years now, Ben McBride has been doing the strange and difficult work of redefining what it means for folks to belong to one another, not just as a sentiment, but as a personal, cultural, and institutional practice. He's an activist, a spiritual leader, one of the most valued voices in the country when it comes to the conversation about police and community trust building and gun violence, and he is my guest on this episode of the Odyssey Podcast. Check it out. Where do you live now? Where are you now? Yeah, so I'm living in East Oakland, been living uh, in an area probably over the last 10 years. Um, that was called initially the uh, kill zone of East Oakland. I first moved in where a lot of the violence was happening, but I, yeah. I'm still there, been there for about a decade. You're, you're not from Oakland? No, originally from San Francisco. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We, we grew up uh, in kind of a normal residential neighborhood uh, there, and um, but I relocated back to Oakland to try to respond to some of the violence uh, over a decade ago. But my grandmother, when she first relocated from the South, fleeing, I like to say she was fleeing two Jims, Jim Crow and my crazy ass grandfather, Jim McBride. <laughs> so she she made it out to East Oakland. And uh, so our family I actually moved back into the neighborhood that my grandmother first came to 50 years ago. Really? Mm-hmm. Did you know that when you were doing it? I did not. Like, really? actually, it was, it felt like a moment of providence. There was a guy that I knew that I used to pastor and he called me and said, hey man, I got a house I want to sell you. And you know, it's in a tough neighborhood, but I've been hearing you talk about some stuff you want to do around violence. And so I came and moved in, and it wasn't until I actually moved there and went and walked around the neighborhood that I realized I was two blocks from my grandmother's old house. Dang. Yeah, it was kind of this moment of like, because then I also had a story of being a kid growing up there and playing and what it looked like back in the 80s versus kind of like to where it was then and looking at the change and it almost just kind of felt like this moment like she fled violence and came there and then I was moving there to respond to violence yes. and just trying to figure out like, really interesting full circle moment it is yeah it is so does it feel like home like where you are now because we're and this is this is the I ask every guest about home mm-hmm. and like location because yeah. I think geography is like it is theology mm-hmm. like how where we live is identity but where you live is also like you move there strategically to do a work yeah, yeah. and you have a particular um, like your experience of, of where you live is vocationally oriented yeah, and yeah, driven for sure. so does it feel like home not necessarily no yeah. it, you know home for me still feels like San Francisco huh. uh, which is interesting yeah. um, and I think you know still kind of informs for me my worldview because San Francisco kind of being this place at least when I grew up there where people who were from all different kind of backgrounds were in relationship with one another. Yeah. And I had an experience growing up in the city 
that still I long for, even though Frisco's not that anymore either. But huh. there's a feeling that Frisco had um, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, that I still long for. So San Francisco still feels like home to me, whereas Oakland still feels like uh, work. Is that exhausting? It is. It yeah. is. I mean, there's parts where, where I've thought about where I need to live, where I can kind of have a sense of rootedness, because I do have an orientation in Oakland of just a deep awareness of, of what's going on. And so yeah. living in a place that is constantly reminding you of, of what it is you want to do doesn't always pre- present some space to yeah. just be. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So if someone was to say, uh, like they, co- they, they come in contact with you and um, they, they've maybe they've seen a video, they've yeah. seen like, what are you, what are you doing? Like what? Like what has Ben McBride up to? What are you actually not? Sure, and here, and I think you know what I'm asking. It's mm-hmm. not like, hey, what's the name of your org? Yeah. Like yeah. you know, like what are you doing? Yeah. For me, I, I always say like I'm a peacemaker. Like that. That is like my orientation. I live to try to really seek to create peace wherever it is that I'm hanging. And so, um, um, it's it's but that's that's kind of the vocation. It that yeah. has taken on like multiple different organizations or institutions or whatever. But I see myself as like trying to figure out how to get human beings to be more peaceful with each other in relationship. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm I feel like, you know, a little bit, you know, some of my homies have made fun of me where they're like, man, you, you, you too black and too big to be always sounding like a white hippie that's smoking hash you right. know, underneath the tree. Right. That's kind of like <laughs> who I am a little bit that I, I kind of have this real idealistic vision of what the world should look like. And, uh, and I'm trying to find my role. draw a pretty hard line between peacemaking yeah. and peacekeeping. Yeah. That uh, there is, and not even in terms of like one is particularly wrong, mm-hmm. but one is particularly biblical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The peacekeeping isn't a biblical call. No, it's, 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 it isn't at all. It isn't. Whereas peacemaking is. Can you break down a little bit like... We're, I'm, you know, we're gen comfortably. You know, I'm familiar with the word peacekeeper, yeah. which, yeah. like, I mean, we, and you can dig into like what that what that actually means in function. Mm-hmm. But talk about like coming to the conclusion, like, like what is the difference between peacemaking functionally yeah. and peacekeeping, and and like what's the danger yeah. of not knowing that difference? Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, the, you know, all these terms are interesting because I'm like while I. I make this distinction between peacekeeping and peacemaking. And then I was talking with one of my Muslim homies and, and his definition of peacemaker was my definition of peacekeeper. And he was saying I, we needed to be a peace builder. But then when we defined it, how he Same defines peace building is how I define peacemaking. Right. <laughs> yes. So okay, some of good. this is like lost in translation a little yeah. bit. Right. Um, to me, peacekeeping is the notion of preserving the status quo and just trying to get people to get along with the world as it is. Where I think of peacemaking as inserting yourself into obvious conflict for the purpose of trying to increase belonging and increase a sense of peace that's rooted in the notions of real reconciliation and justice. And so like when I think about reconciliation, 
It's not about holding hands or even just getting people to come together. That can still be peacekeeping. Reconciliation to me is like if you were to look at an account and there was money spent and money owed and you were going to reconcile that account, that meant you had to really do the math to figure out what does it mean for us to make these books square. That's how I think about peacemaking and reconciliation as a part of that. Peacemaking is about looking for the conflict and inserting oneself rather than avoiding it. Yeah. And you've inserted yourself you've inserted yourself in a couple of little like strategic places. Yeah. One you talked about this morning is you've done a, a hundred sessions with uh, with law enforcement. Yeah. Yeah. Get me there. Yeah. Where like is that a place you fell into, or I get the feeling that like you kind of showed up and said I want to do a thing here? Like how did that work? Yeah, I mean, I certainly didn't know what I was saying yes to initially. I just did it because it was a part of the violent introduction strategy we were doing in Oakland. And a part of that third leg was to work on um, restoring trust between um, the community and the police department. And they needed a community member to help train law enforcement. So I said yes to do it. And the first session I did it, it was awful. Um, I didn't enjoy it. The officers didn't enjoy it. Well, I mean, you know, I, I came in with my kind of my existing and kind of justified suspicion around like who the officers were and where there was any openness to me. And when I came in the room, the room went absolutely cold. I mean, people's facial expressions turned. I mean, people did not want to hear what it is that I had to say because we were looking at each other from the outside. Um, And, but over the course of, of doing it continually, I began to find ways to to see how we could warm up the conversation. Yeah. And a big part of it for me was recognizing that I don't really know what it feels like to be in the shoes of a cop. I know what it feels like to be in the shoes of a black dude that's been racially profiled by the police. And so when I came in to not just share my own truth, but also to be open to hear where they were coming from as well, and then figure out how to create something different, that, that created some different opportunities. Now, the, the thing that's interesting, like to show like I wasn't trying to do it, you know, I came in, started that conversation. To me, this was just going to be an Oakland conversation. I was having that as as a citizen community member of Oakland. Two weeks after I started the police training is when Mike Brown got killed in Ferguson. Hmm. And so then I had a choice. I was driving down from San Jose, and I was like, I'm about to go in here and just get the police my full thing. I'm about to just vomit on them and just throw yeah. up and, like, get all my frustrations out. And um, I just felt like in that moment, like the spirit invited me into another opportunity. It was like, I can do that or I can actually take this anger and frustration I'm feeling and and actually utilize it as a way to try to create more opportunity for understanding and Hmm. um, listening. And um, and it proved to be the fuel that, you know, I've worked with not just doing 100 sessions, but, you know, I've trained 100 different departments and have probably done several hundred sessions mm-hmm. across, you know, there's at least four or five departments that I did really deep on and then more training police chiefs and, and other command personnel. So it, I, initially I was just saying yes to what was supposed to be a six to eight month yeah. deal that ended up turning into a five-year deal. So I think, you know, sometimes you find a situation, sometimes a situation finds you. Yeah. So when you say you, – you'll say this out loud. You just said like you know, I don't know what it's like to be in, in, the, in the shoes of a cop no. or, um, or like taking – like especially like, like right after Mike Brown was murdered mm-hmm. to move in that place and, and, and not like just take um, – how should I ask this question? It's like aren't you supposed to – like isn't that the thing? Like, is, like you're not supposed to understand. Like, like it doesn't matter. Like this is, this is like that, 
the other narrative, right? It doesn't matter. It's not you're not supposed to understand. It does. It's not helpful for you to understand what it's like to be a cop or want to be. But like, like it. it draw a line. Help me understand the difference between like because you're not peace. You're what I don't. You're not just gonna keep the peace and be like, hey, I don't want to start a thing here. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you're not trying to defeat an enemy. Yeah. Well, and so for me, the sense of like understanding is. I want to understand your human experience. I'm not trying to necessarily understand or justify your systemic um, reality. I'm going to understand your human experience, right? So you're a human being trapped inside a racist system, right? But you're still a human being. Now, if I lose your humanity um, and only see you as the system, well, then I fear that I have now become the very thing that I abhor, right? And so, like, I think Donnie talked about, we need to be hard on systems and soft on people, right? So... For me, it's about like, how do I have the capacity to be able to see you as a human being, recognize that you're a part of a racist, unjust system, and then figure out how we as human beings can work together to try to either change or get rid of that system and replace it with something new. But if, if I can't see you as a human, then that, then that becomes my challenge now. I show up to the story as somebody who's had a lot of privilege and has a lot of capacity to hold all of that. I grew up with a very strong family system, and, you know, I, I kind of, we got the whole little kind of Christian version of the Cosby Show thing in my family, I mean, without the Bill Cosby drama and all right. that. But, you know, yeah, different we, show. We, 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 <laughs> we, I come from, like, a real, you know, with a lot of spaciousness, right? Other people who've had challenges, are I, there shouldn't be an expectation that they can show up that way. So to me, you know, all of us are positioned in life differently. We can show up to different stories. And so most cops that were in the training couldn't show up that way, but some could. Some could meet me in the middle. And those folks who could, I would work with to try to figure out how do we change our institutions. I think you could take that and overlay it on any kind of you know, challenge, whether that's across race, whether it's dealing with systems, whether it's dealing with religion yeah. and faith, and and we can find ways to find common ground. It doesn't mean that we disappear the, the responsibility that where there is injustice, we have to be very fierce about attacking that, undoing it. Um, and sometimes that's where, as my dad would say, the rubber really needs to roll around, whether we're really trying to do reconciliation. very public moment in which the, 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 there was like a great deal of tension between personal connection, sy- uh, sy- the you know, systemic ramifications of a particular moment was uh, Botham Jean <clears throat> uh, murdered in his own home yeah. by a police officer. Yeah. So uh, Amber Geiger, she's tried, she's found guilty. And then Botham's brother mm. does this thing where he says from up front, like, you know, God loves you. I love you. I wish you didn't have to go to jail. And then does the moment say, "Can I? Can I give her a hug?" Mm-hmm. And then they give her a Bible. And then and, and there was this whole thing. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of there was a lot of I, I, it's not even like conflict. It was just this social chaos mm-hmm. around the moment yeah. that yeah. sort of exposed like I don't think we're all seeing this mm-hmm. thing the same way because some folks saw like this is fantastic. Like he's hugging her. That's his brother. There's forgiveness. Like why can't – it was kind of like why can't we just feel good about this? And the other side was like 
he's he is truncating a much longer process like this is too, how did you personally you because yeah. you saw the moment yeah. you saw it repeated yeah. it was on the news a bunch mm-hmm. it came across your timeline mm-hmm. you're Ben McBride you work with cops but you're also a black man mm-hmm. who's been profiled by the cops how do you like who protests on the street and, protests, and right. shut down freeways for yes you do right. so how so how do you see that moment where it's like you're watching that ha- like what happened in you while you're watching that yeah so I mean um, for me, what I saw was the brother of somebody who had been murdered by a police officer trying to find a way to make meaning of his grief, hmm. you know, and and the way in which he was making meaning was through a, you know, kind of theological narrative and story that he has in himself around trying to offer some probably premature and not all the way worked out in his mind, heart and spirit forgiveness um, with the woman who killed his brother. Um, I saw in the cop, you know, a person who I think was like horrified probably by what it is that she did and probably even more horrified that she was going to be going to jail and and was struggling. And, and a judge who's, you know, coming from a, a church tradition that also has a theological narrative around forgiveness. And everybody's wrestling to try to figure out what to do. And it's messy because because people are struggling. Now, what I saw on the outside of it was is more what interested me, that yeah. people would would begin to, um, you know, on the on the right, everybody celebrating. This is obviously how we should be responding to everything. And all the angry black folks that are upset when the police do this need to just love Jesus and hold hands. That feels to me to be a very underdeveloped, you know, not thought through response. But then also on the left, people piling on Botham's brother and saying, you know, oh, he's he's selling out and look at what he's doing and, you know, so on and so forth. And his brother's turning in his grave is also revealing to me like a very small circle of concern to be able to see this brother in his grief. And so like what it shows me in, in these moments is that like we're all being socialized into what's the right answer to say whenever you're presented with some kind of stimuli. Rather than figuring out how do we slow down, have some reflection about what's going on, not take our story and overlay it on everybody else's story, but but try to, you know, slow down and listen longer than feels comfortable and not have to post 30 seconds after we see something and and, and end up creating more harm. And so, um, you know, to me, I think the framework of like people of color, black folks, any folks that have been oppressed and needing to move to quick forgiveness for people who have oppressed them, I think is a premature, underdeveloped way of thinking. I think forgiveness should always involve reparation and restoration. Um, To be true, forgiveness and reconciliation. Um, And um, I just don't think we have a lot of patterns in this country Hmm. and examples Hmm. to draw from. So so a lot of that we're going to have to be creating on the fly. had a you had a personal moment that was pretty unexpected in the same direction with regards to like um having to slow down and take in someone else's 
uh, grief mm-hmm. where you there was a young woman you ran into in Ferguson yeah. you went you like dove into what was going on for you invited in hey we need some help yep. to, to we you know, I think the invitation of the way you communicated is you had a sister who was out there who was it was a pastoring a church and she yep. said can you come help us get, get the, the kids off the street? the street yeah and you sure things went dramatically differently mm-hmm. but one of those moments for you is you're on the street between between law enforcement and a lot of like justifiably angry kids mm-hmm. young one of these kids. is one of these one of these is this young black woman mm-hmm. and t- like take me from that moment like something changed for you there yeah I mean we're standing there and and you know uh, everybody's upset I mean the tension in the air is as so thick you could cut it with a knife yeah man. you know the the wristband that went viral the picture got taken that night the guy leaned over the um, shoulder of the person standing next to me and took the picture of the officer's wristband that said, I am Darren Wilson. That was the night that I was out there. This, this is that moment, yeah. right? And, and It's that, like everything's happening. Everything is happening in this moment, right? And then this young black woman who couldn't be more than 17, 18 years old is screaming, um, tears rolling down her, her cheeks, I'm a human being, I'm a human being. You care more about a dog than you do me. She's yelling this to the police. You go home happy, I go home home sad. And what I recognize in that moment is like, I've been racially profiled by the police. You know, my brother Mike was beat up by the police when he was in Bible college. I mean, we've got a a story of racial violence with police and and racist folks for four generations in our family. But but in that moment, what I recognized was there was a proximity to pain that she had that I didn't have. The the visceral level of, of terror and fear and anger and lament that she had, I wasn't carrying. And so what I recognize is even though I was black, you know, I still was not necessarily having her experience. And so what I had to recognize was like, I can either judge her, tell her to calm down, tell her what she needs to do, or I can actually bear witness to the fact that she's expressing something that is true, that I don't necessarily know fully to be true in the way that I am, and I can learn from that. And that's what made me stay in Ferguson. Understanding part there, where there's there's a there's a there's a way in which like you want to get it for someone, but that can't be the goal. Yeah. It can't be, the goal can't just be like oh I get where you're coming from. There's sort of that deeper thing. There's and and the word you're using now, public, you're talking about belonging mm-hmm. a lot, yeah. which is different than just understanding mm-hmm. somebody, mm-hmm. but to belong to folks. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about like the, the work you're doing? So I'm I mean full disclosure, I'm in a cohort that you were leading mm-hmm. called C5. It's a lot of like faith leaders. Mm-hmm. And, and the whole theme around this thing is about, is about belonging. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about like the difference between what it means to just understand someone, understand yeah. their culture yeah. versus a sense of actually belonging to people? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think, you know, there's been a lot of moves over the last, you know, decades around inclusion and diversity and, and what does it mean for us to get people together across difference. But ultimately, you know, belonging as as you know, I and others have been thinking about it is really about how do we really create a world where everyone is able to be who it is that they are 
um, without having to become like the dominant group in order to participate in the larger story. Hmm. And, and so belonging for us is not just um, an idea, but for us, it, it needs to practice itself out culturally and structurally. Right. So culturally, how do we belong to one another and learn, you know, how to be in relationship with each other across difference? Yes. Right. Like how how do we learn how to hold your story and my story in in a larger shared story? That doesn't mean that I have to disappear my story into your story or your story into mine. But we get a bigger story by actually putting our stories together. That's the cultural side. Mm. But then we need to do structural belonging, which is how do we also create systems and structures in policing, in education, in healthcare, in housing, in the way that the economy works, and the way in which we relate to the environment and the yeah. creation? How do we how do we create systems that also reflect belonging and ensure that we're creating systems where not just the dominant group gets a house, but everybody gets a house. Yeah. That not just the dominant group gets to be left alone by the police, but everybody gets to be left alone by the police unless they're actually doing something that that threatens everyone's safety. And and to really begin to focus on what systems are functioning out of belonging and which ones aren't. But it's not something that only the people most impacted are talking about, but we're all talking about it because we're all beginning to see ourselves as belonging to a newer and bigger me. an event um, a few weeks ago and, and um, the question was asked of this panel of, uh, of women um, like why does it matter because one of the panelists was talking about Jesus like you, you did this morning mm-hmm. you know Jesus was not a white male mm-hmm. duh mm-hmm. <clears throat> and they talked about there's this you know this painting that was passed around and we kind of got this idea of Jesus as a white male and she and she said it's really again it's a, you know it's important to Jesus. And she says, she just sort of that it's like an announcement, which is mm-hmm. great. You know, this brown skin. Mm-hmm. Why does it, you talked about this one. I'd love for you to set up the way you did. Why does it matter mm-hmm. for anyone, but specifically for Jesus followers? Why does it matter for Christians to culturally contextualize Jesus? And really specifically, mm-hmm. why does it like, yeah, his particular cultural context. Why, why is that actually important? Yeah, I mean, I think it's important for all the reasons that it's been made unimportant and irrelevant over the last thousand years, right? So I think, you know, when we hear Jesus' message as something that is just coming out of the cosmic um, realm, that is that is just flowing down to us that was not spoken by a particular person during a particular time among a particular set of circumstances, 
when, when we hear it without that specificity, it has a tendency to um, then cause the message that Jesus gave to not have any color, to not have any context, to just be a cosmic message about a vertical, divine, spiritual relationship that has no horizontal um, responsibility or experience. And so I think telling the story of Jesus as who he was, talking to the people who he was in the context that he was, I mean, we're talking about a, a darker hued person who was living under Roman occupation, living in an imperial system, you know, living a life at times as a refugee and an immigrant. And yet Jesus was a refugee. And then we have people who say they follow Jesus who want to deny refugees when they actually follow a refugee, right? We have people who actually defend the police instead of defending the people killed by the police when Jesus himself was a victim of state violence, right? So by, if you don't understand Jesus' story, you will find yourself actually not really following Jesus. You'll be following American imperialism with a splash of Jesus on the top of it, but but it's really no gospel at all, right? So I think, you know, Cornell, Dr. Cornell West has this great quote where he says, white evangelicals have stood at the cross of Jesus and caught his blood in a cup and then uh, manufactured it into Kool-Aid for mass consumption. And I think it's a, it's a really hard, like, colorful quote, but it, what it's, I think, challenging us is that Jesus spoke a message about the world as it should be from a certain position and us understanding that will then help inform for us if the gospel was spoken from the underside of the empire then then that means it's still being spoken from the underside of the empire now so we've got to go get where the gospel is being preached instead of trying to create our own gospel outside thing i'm going to try to paint this picture but you did a thing uh in the cohort in which you know, there was this um kind of room was spread out we did this whole kind of the investigation the quadrant yeah. the, the investigation of systems and the way we treat one another and and without giving the whole thing away one of the elements of this of of the exercise was that there were people in each quadrant who were um they were the they had all the information mm-hmm. they were helping to lead the game Mm-hmm. And part of the deal, the end of the game, everyone's sort of in it together, or at least we think we are. Mm-hmm. And then what the folks who were left out were the folks who were leading in those quadrants. And no one saw it until you pointed it out. Mm-hmm. You seem to you seem to want to be able to move slow enough to take some of those people with you. Mm-hmm. One of the one of the, the the critiques I have of progressive culture in general mm-hmm. is the, the the sort of capacity we've developed mm-hmm. to not just leave behind mm-hmm. but to, to to do so and to and to, to dehumanize mm-hmm. those who have perpetuated mm-hmm. benefited from yep. unjust systems mm-hmm. but you use terms like you are a human being trapped in a racist system That's it. can you talk a little bit about the experience of Wanting to take some of those people, you you're like there there is a strain, and I'm, I might miss with this, but like there is a strain in what you're doing that is inclusive of oppressors. It it is it is well you know for me a lot of it comes out of the gospel of Jesus and a lot of it also comes out of the um, 
the social and I, I would argue theological and and gospel teaching of Dr. King. You know, I, I was in a conversation with Andrew Young at the beginning of this year at this uh, convening, and he, he t- told us about this private conversation that they had with Dr. King where they were going off about the racist white folks that had just called them niggers at the at the um, the protest and march that they were doing. And, and he said, Martin came to the living room and said, can I say something? And everybody was like, yeah, Martin, what do you want to say? He said, our, he said uh, our white brothers and sisters are no more inferior because of their racism as we are superior because of our ability to spot it. We were both born into an unjust story. He said, now it is our responsibility to pursue our liberation. As we become free, they will get free at the same time. He said, but if we carry hatred in our hearts so much to the point that when we do get into this new place, that there is no place for them to participate or belong, I would say in this new world, then we will have the same situation happening all over again, just with a different power dynamic. I mean, I think the, the one of the greatest challenges we have particularly with folks who consider themselves progressive, is how do we think about undoing empire without becoming imperial? You know, like one of the other lines I've used has been like, you know, what's the purpose of going to the promised land if you become Pharaoh on the sojourn? Like you, you've then changed everything and changed nothing, yeah. right? So, you know, we have to believe in a world where everybody belongs. We have to imagine a future that includes those who oppose us, even though they are right now manifesting a present that doesn't include us. And that can, and that doesn't have to be everybody's job. No, because like, there's some there's some folks for whom like I, I can't even begin to think about like the kinds of injuries they've that they've suffered yeah. under particularly kinds of leadership. Nope. Maybe that's not your job. Yeah, but. If it's boy, the job it should. Of boy, we got to hope it's somebody. Well, and here's my thing. If it's the job of others, you know, how do we get to a, to a way of functioning where everybody doesn't have to do the same thing, yep. but everybody has to do something? And how do we get to a way, like as much as some of us seem to, to criticize policing, we sure know how to police each other, right? So, like, <laughs> how, how yeah. do we get to a place where yeah. the way in which you're getting down may not be the way that I get down? And I don't, I don't, again, have to necessarily understand it, but if I'm in relationship with you, what are the ways that we have some opportunities to speak truthfully about one another where I can say, hey, here's why I'm feeling concerned about some of the methods you're going about, and you can talk to me about what it is that you're trying to accomplish, and we can find ways to bridge that difference and figure out how we do it in a way where we can continue to have trust and have relationship rather than me saying, oh, Justin's not human. I'm going to demonize Justin. I'm going to try to cancel Justin, yeah. you know, because he's not showing up the way that I'm showing up. I mean, I, I, I just think, and, and here's the thing, like I told some of my activist homies, I said, listen, you know, one of them was telling me, they said, Ben, I critique your frame, and I'm open for critique, but he said, I critique your frame that everybody belongs. Everybody does not belong. He said, some of these racist white folks who have done stuff to our community and keep doing it, they don't belong. And I yeah. said, okay, bro. I said, but we don't have a lot of time, so let's just cut to the chase of it. What do we do with them? I said, do we kill them? Do we cage them? Well, what, 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 what are we going to do? I said, and if we do that, how are we not becoming the very thing that they've done to us over the last 400 years? I said, so like, there has to be a better way. And and is it is it fair that it falls to us to have to be our responsibility to live this better way? I'm not going to get into the conversation of what is fair. My take, quick take on it, hell no, it's not fair, right? But guess what? We have a moment that we have all inherited. None of us created it, but we all inherited. So let's be the best versions of ourselves in this moment. That's the call I'm trying to live. That's good, man. Thanks for your time. Cool. Uh, 
And thank you for joining us on this episode of the At Sea Podcast. If you'd like to follow up with Ben McBride, you can jump to benmcbride.com. B-E-N-M-C-B-R-I-D-E, benmcbride.com, where you'll be greeted with this powerful suggestion that the wrong first question is what do we need to do, which is where I always jump to. The right first question is who do we need to become? You can also find Ben at Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. He's very active. If you'd like to keep up with us and this podcast, you can just visit me at justinmcroberts.com. And if you'd like to support the work of this podcast, you can go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, and just search my name, Justin McRoberts. We'd love to have you on the team. Until next time.